0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters news.
1: Hello and welcome to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Liam Proud, a columnist in London. This week, we'll survey the damage from a slow motion crash in China's automotive market and think through a potential solution for the country's ailing car makers. But first, ever heard of Brexit? You may have long ago tuned out the ongoing saga that is Britain's exit from the European Union. But new Prime Minister Boris Johnson seems to be considering some pretty radical moves to get Brexit over the line. Currency traders are fleeing the pound and some of the Prime Minister's own members of Parliament are even figuring out how they could bring him down. I sat down with two of my colleagues in London who have been following every step of the way. I'm here with Edward Haddas and Peter Thalarsson today, um, and we're going to talk about Brexit. Now, Peter, something quite dramatic has just happened quite soon before I was recording this. Um, we're about Wednesday lunchtime now. This is going out on Thursday. So why don't you talk us through what's happened, and then we can go into some of the ramifications.
2: Uh, well, what has happened is that Boris Johnson's government has basically uh, asked the Queen to suspend Parliament. Uh, for just over four weeks uh, in the run-up to October the 14th, um, and uh, at which point the government would have a Queen's Speech and introduce new legislation for a new parliamentary session. Um, but the reason this matters, I mean, that, that happens quite a lot with yeah, new parliaments. although
0: this is a very long uh, closure.
2: This is the suspension, the, or the proroguing, and to, use the, to use the term, is, is about a week longer than normal. Yeah, um, And the reason it matters, of course, is because we're in a situation where we're basically two months away from uh, Britain leaving the European Union, uh, or the latest deadline for Britain leaving the European Union. Um, all of the possibilities are still are on the table. It's possible Britain might renegotiate some deal. It's possible it might leave without a deal. Or it's possible that Parliament might find some way of extending the deadline mm-hmm. or even reversing Brexit. And this move essentially means that for over a month, Parliament will not be sitting,
1: so it crunches all of that parliamentary work that needs to go on um, in order to, you know, basically work out what is going to happen in the run-up to October on, on October the thirty-first. It crunches that into a much smaller time frame.
2: Well, actually, I mean, in practical terms, what it means is that people who want to stop Boris Johnson from uh, being able to take Britain out of the EU without a deal uh, essentially have less time to do whatever it is that they're going to do. It basically means that when September, Parliament comes back in September the 3rd, they'll have just over a week to do whatever it is that they might do to stop him from pushing through his plan.
1: And what are their options? How could they stop him from pushing through his plan? I mean, this is assuming that his plan is to do our day Brexit. We leave on October the 31st, even if there's no deal in place.
2: That That is what he says. He's said consistently all along that's his plan. Um, I mean, Johnson basically is essentially presenting two options he's saying i'm going to go to the e- i'm going to the eu they've already had some discussions i'm going to renegotiate this bad deal that Theresa may deal did i'm going to come back with a better deal and then i'll put that to parliament uh, uh, after the eu summit on october the 17th um and then we can vote that through and we can we can leave with a deal and the implied alternative is we leave without a deal either if he fails to renegotiate because the Brussels is unreasonable or because parliament prevents him or something so then you leave without a deal. Um, So what the the people who want to stop this essentially have to do is either to force him to seek some kind of extension, basically which means passing legislation that says the government must go to the EU and ask for more time, um, or to vote down the government. That's the sort of the, the nuclear option is to basically have a vote of no confidence and to say, this House, this Parliament has no confidence in the government.
1: And then Um, the question is what replaces this government and and are they able to extend the deadline past the cliff edge and all of these questions?
2: um, That then raises all, yes, were that to happen, that then raises all kinds of other questions. One is can you form an alternative government out of the parties that currently exist in the House, who would lead it, would other parties agree to join that government, etc., even if it was there just to seek an extension or to call another referendum or something. Um, or I think, which I think is more likely, is um, would be to hold an election. Yeah. Um, essentially, and I, 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 I still think probably the most likely outcome in all of this uh, is that um, uh, is, is is that there's an election um, that Johnson is even though he said he doesn't want to have one, he's forced to call one, and that he then has an election probably before the end of October, uh, in which he says, I'm trying to deliver Brexit. I've got all these wonderful plans for Britain post-Brexit. I'm being thwarted in my ambition yeah. by these unreasonable bureaucrats in Brussels and these uh, um, these these undemocratic MPs yeah. in Westminster. You must give me a parliamentary majority so that I can deliver what it is that I want.
1: Got it. So, I mean, just from looking at the, the currency markets this morning, I mean, Edward, you were pointing out in your piece uh, this morning about the kind of the economic consequences of all this being quite dire. I mean... The pound seems to be indicating that a disastrous Brexit scenario is more likely than it was before this stage. I mean, what, how should we think about all this from a kind of financial economic point Well, of
0: you? You know, there's really never been a strong economic or really any economic case for Brexit. Um, there, you, know, you have to really dislike experts to think, oh, well, there's some reason why you would be better off changing your trading relationships with um, your your major trading partner with whom you've had very good trading relationships and with whom you've you know you work together, um, it just doesn't really make any sense to say that you will be in any sense more prosperous if you are to regain the lost prosperity. It will take years, probably decades, and even that's very unlikely. So the the currency market has been con- completely consistent, and you know I. Mm. Praising the currency market isn't one of my favorite things, but actually they've been very, very straight about this. The worse the Brexit deal, the um, the lower the pound goes. It's yeah. a very straight vote of no confidence. Yeah, if this. you look at
1: the graph since, you know... When it seemed likely that Boris Johnson would come into power, it's a kind of slow meltdown of the pound. Basically, and then today, a kind well, of actually, fast actually meltdown. from
2: the moment when he wrote his famous editorial right. coming out in support of the Leave campaign, that was, you know, people read that correctly. I think as as a sign that Leave was more likely, yeah. and the and the pound weakened on that. It was
0: Boris. What swung it? Yeah.
1: So the economics is pretty dire. I mean, what what would what would be the way to rescue ourselves? From well, this? you
0: know. What people have said for a long time um, in the political commentators and parliamentarians and certainly Boris Johnson is that it's not realistic to revoke Article 50, that is to say, we're just going to stay in, to, in um, mm. the European Union.
1: So just just to clarify for our listeners, that the, revoke Article 50 is we're calling the whole thing off. Yeah. and So Article
2: 50 is the two-year, yeah. well now two-and-a-bit-year process in, under which you are supposed to to be leaving the EU. And and you can legally withdraw that notification unilaterally without... um,
1: Well, at the permission of anyone in Europe, you can just say... Up to
0: 11.59 p.m. on the date before the extension. But this has been basically ruled out of the political mainstream ever since um, Article 50, this article was enacted under um, the, the former Prime Minister Theresa May. Um, my point is, uh, my, my argument is, that actually that's the most realistic thing to do because all the other claims about Brexit are so unrealistic, not with or without a deal, and especially without a deal, that um, if, you don't, uh, if you don't revoke Article 50, you make the country um, mm. more angry Um, less unified, and get very few advantages of the sort that the people supporting Brexit believe they're going to get. So it seems to me the right thing to do is to revoke Article 50. And not just because I'm some kind of pro-European maniac, but because um, if you think about the good of the country in any dimension, even if you don't like the EU, um, that this is actually the least bad way forward.
1: So not a second referendum, that's not what, what you'd throw your, I, your Well, mind. a second
0: referendum that comes up with, as I might say, the right answer is fine, except it just increases the division because the people who want to leave will say, this referendum was unfair, that's unfair. There's a level of bitterness about the Remain um, group um, that is not going to be assuaged by that you lose a referendum by 54 to 46 or whatever, yeah. um, just as... The people who wish to stay are not really persuaded by a referendum that was lost 52-48.
2: I mean I agree with Edward that, that basically there are no good options at the moment like whatever happens it's bad and it's divisive and right um, and I also agree that sort of economically geopolitically the best thing to do is to stay in the EU the question is how you get there um, I think revoking article 50 without any other kind of democratic exercise
1: democratic event yeah would would be um
2: i just i i I think it's i mean it's clearly it's legally possible there's nothing to stop parliament from making that decision Um, but i think it would be it would be it would be very difficult to, to to do when you're if you're basically countering the result of a referendum without another referendum i think you need a referendum to cancel out the other referendum the other practical issue is just those is that in, in order to revoke Article 50, you need someone to actually propose that legislation. Yep. And that kind of has to be the government. If the government doesn't want to do it, then um, it's actually really hard to do. So, so what you would think what you're describing would require some sort of vote of no confidence, creation of some new sort of temporary government, then passing a revocation of Article 50 unilaterally by that temporary government, and then having some sort of election or something afterwards which could then... You know, allow everything with, to start perhaps again. Perhaps
0: with a promise that if you, we can recall Article 50 again and start this whole process if we have an election. Um, yeah, there is a technical issue there, yeah. which is
2: the EU sort of says you can revoke Article 50, but, but you that, have to mean it. But you have to really mean it. You yeah. can't sort of revoke it and then trigger it again the next day. Right. Um, so it gets a bit complicated. But we're in we're in the land of complicated. Constitutional, unprecedented. unprecedented sort of situations,
1: and you so you, you don't think this because there's a lot of bluster, Peter, at the moment about saying that Boris Johnson's kind of you know plan A, if you like, would now be to have an election just after we've actually exited in a no deal scenario. You don't think that's likely, and that's a lot of people seem to think that's that's you know there's some reports this morning saying that's now his.
2: This is so so apparently, sort of uh, uh, senior sources at Number Ten are um. letting it be known. That if there was a vote of no confidence, that they wouldn't allow a new government to be formed. Uh, They would run the clock down and then call an
1: election for after October 31st. So we've already driven off the cliff and then you have a vote after that point. Immediately afterwards.
2: Which, I mean, may be legally, constitutionally possible, uh, although there's a lot of debate about that. But I just think it's politically unthinkable because basically you would then be saying... We, even though there's been a vote of no confidence in this government, this government is going to basically organize things in such a way that we will leave the EU without a deal even though parliament has basically said we don't want this. Yeah. And the other thing you would then be saying is, is, is we're going to have an election in six weeks time after we have left the EU without a deal. Uh, Clearly, there will be no parliament. There'll be no, the parliament will have would have been, you know, dissolved. Yeah. So there will be no one to pass any emergency legislation or anything yeah. to prepare for a no deal Brexit. Um, the, the, the civil service and everything will be in limbo, and you're then going to have an election campaign in that period, as everybody is realizes that we really are going off the cliff this time. Yeah, and people start stockpiling food and medicines and kind of panicking, and the pound yeah. falls even further. I just think. I can't see which political strategist would think it would be a good idea yeah. to have so, an election. So it's more
1: likely the political strategist is, is thinking this is quite a nice bluff if we can make enough people believe this.
2: I think, I mean, again, I think it all goes back to that vote of no confidence calculation. I suspect part of the calculation here is, is if you force people to make a decision in early September about whether or not to have a vote of no confidence. The conserv and basically, in order for the vote of no confidence to succeed, a number of conservatives have to have to basically yeah. vote against the government, which is a major move, obviously, yeah. for, for for a parliamentarian to vote against their own government. If they have to do that in a situation where a, there's still the possibility there might be a deal in October, and b, the end result might be there's an election with no deal. You know, yep. and they, i.e. their sacrifice will have failed to have prevented no deal. Yep. So if you can cut, put that kind of doubt in their minds, They're that might then prompt them to say, oh, well, maybe I'll hold on for now and hope to see whether I can do something later
1: in October. Interesting. Thanks very much. Edward, any, any parting thoughts?
0: Um, well, I would just say we've gone into very extraordinary territory. So the idea of something coming completely unexpected should not be... Unexpected. So court cases, European Union changes, rapid total pivot from Boris Johnson, who has never been known for consistency or telling the truth, wouldn't rule it out.
1: Great. Okay. Eyes peeled then, folks. Thanks very much, Peter. Thanks very much, Edward. And now on to the second and final section of the week. Katrina Hamlin and Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong keep a close eye on China's car makers, most of which have been doing pretty terribly of late. They're going to take you through some of the problems bedeviling the massive automotive market and think through a potential solution.
3: Thanks, Liam. I'm Katrina Hamlin, and I'm here in Hong Kong with our editor, Pete Sweeney. Pete, we've been watching the first of the auto results come in, and first half auto sales in China have been looking absolutely abysmal. Is there any sign of reaching the bottom in in this downturn? Well,
4: certainly a lot of investors hope that we're seeing a bottom and that there's a turnaround. The, the, what they're hoping is that one of the things that caused the slowdown this year was the ending of subsidies, especially applied to lower end or smaller engined cars, which had produced this bump in demand earlier as people kind of front-loaded their purchases and then has seen this kind of fall-off. The problem is that that has gone on for a much longer time than I think most people hoped. It's been 13 straight months of contracting sales, I believe, um, as far as July, and certainly nothing macroeconomically. Has happened to indicate that the sun is, is going to rise anytime soon for this industry. In addition, and we can we can analyze this separately. There's also been change in the electric vehicle policy, which is another area where some had hoped for replacement demand. Really, what we've seen so far has been. You know, there's one bright spot with luxury, um, with especially, you know, BMW, the foreign cars. Those guys have still been doing well, but pretty much everything else is doing really rocky. And we're not, not sure whether this is the bottom or whether there's there's more downside to come.
3: So how has the industry been adapting to this? I, I think we spoke at one point about the possibility of consolidation. Has that happened? Yeah,
4: that's the perennial theme, consolidation. There's too many local automobile manufacturers Too many of them have been coddled by joint venture relationships with foreign companies, so they haven't bothered to create their own brands. They haven't bothered to develop export markets. And therefore, they're stuck in this horrible competition for price and market share um, amongst each other. That's fair. The problem is a lot of these vehicle makers are subsidized or supported or, or backed by their local governments, their big local employers, so a provincial level car champion will get a lot of support in terms of credit and stuff from its 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 local government. And and that makes it easier for them to stay in business, even if they're not really doing selling that many cars, right? So that's where we've seen these aggressive subsidization or price competition that has, has damaged the likes, even of healthy, the healthier local brands, like people point to Great Wall and Geely, both of which are not doing very well this year. Mm-hmm. They were not in JVs. Some people were point, including me, saw as Geely as a potential candidate for being the first Chinese brand to break out you know but in fact it's very difficult for brands like Geely even we make decent cars if you ask you know people them, it's a fine model but it's very difficult for them to add margin because they're still locked in these competitions with with tons of these gnats and arguably the electric vehicle subsidy system has, has encouraged even more competition even more entry because it's seen as this area where government support is hot and therefore uh, you know an easier point of entry and this is where I'm going to ask you what you make of the trends going there, because that seems to have suddenly turned into a less pretty story of late, as well.
3: Mm, well, it's been changing a lot in the last few months. Um, you might remember a year or two ago, the government was all about using carrots to encourage people to buy cleaner vehicles. And by carrots, you mean
4: subsidies, basically. yeah? By carrots, I mean well, subsidies, tax incentives,
3: <laughs> <laughs> and now the the emphasis is shifting to sticks. So you know, emissions limits. Sales quotas, where a car company that does not sell a lot of cleaner vehicles has to actually buy credits. So that is, you know, a very different way of doing things. And as the subsidies have come down, drivers have responded by buying less of these cars. So in July, we actually saw our first drop in electric vehicle sales for around two years. And I I still have confidence that, you know, in the long term, the Chinese government really wants to clean up its act and have a lot more of these cars on the road. But in the short term, the shift in policy does seem to have caused quite a bit of pain. Well, what about the demand
4: side? I mean, you, you discuss discussed a little bit about how there's this kind of hollow market where the top of it is doing well and the bottom of it is doing well and the, mm-hmm. mid, the mid-range is not. What's, what is going on with Chinese consumers and electric cars.
3: Yeah, you're right. That That is a separate and maybe more worrying concern because I think it's harder to address. The subsidies seem to kind of gee up sales at, at the lower end of the market. So cheaper, smaller cars initially. And then at the top end of the market, you have models that you know seem to appeal to the, the sort of higher end consumers in China. So I'm thinking of Teslas and so on. But in between, there doesn't seem to be that many success stories. So in the longer term, as well as, you know, seeing how how these policy issues play out, I think investors will be waiting to see if the electric car makers can sort of find their place in in the middle of the market.
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's going to be a concern if at the end, clean technology requires a change in user behavior, which is always a challenge everywhere. In China means you don't go to the gas station anymore, right? You go to a charging station. I mean, I go to like some of the first tier cities and I see some tons of charging stations. But obviously, there are some people who seem to just prefer to stick with the old system. But I mean, at least uh, they're still getting support from the government.
3: Oh, absolutely. And on that particular issue, the government has put a lot of resources into, into building out the, the infrastructure. And they
4: need this. It's, it's not just environmental cleanliness. I mean, keeping in mind, like if, if you charge a battery powered car from a coal station, you're not actually cleaning up the environment. But this is also an area where, where China wants to lead. I mean, they want to be cutting, cutting edge. They want to build global brands here in a, in a place where they, they can leapfrog but I mean like the conventional guys don't even have that and what's even more worrisome for them at least is the rise in the used second-hand car market you know which is something that that is is relatively a new trend right I mean it used to just be an incredibly embarrassing thing in China to have to buy a second-hand car when you could get all these new ones but now it looks like sales have been have been rising quite quite sharply no
3: right so yes speaking of new technology I think that's been helped along by the advent of these online companies that specialize in used car sales and the stats I saw showed that used car sales last year hit almost 14 million, which is roughly half the number of new cars China sold. Uh, so it's quite significant.
4: Yeah, and even if they export them, just the change in attitude is bad probably for the incumbent Chinese makers. I mean, considering that one can get a used BMW or Audi for the same price as like a new Chinese brand car, I mean, I think that's an even bigger problem. Mm. Well, let me ask you, I mean, like, so what? what's your outlook? I mean, luxury brands BMW those guys still seem to be going okay everything else is bad
3: (laughs) right well I I think neither you nor I feel ready to kind of call a a bottom (laughs) to, to this this misery yet but there is one bright spot that's sort of been remarkably stubborn and that is the luxury segment the results we've seen coming through so far have have shown that sales continue to grow for the likes of sort of BMW Mercedes Audi even when their peers have been really suffering. So that's sort of the one little hint of brightness we've seen. But I think both of us are going to be watching very closely as the last of the results come out to see if that holds up or not.
4: Well, I guess we'll see and we'll we'll let you guys know.
3: Thanks, Pete.
1: That's all this week. Thanks to all our guests and thanks especially to the fantastic Mr. Freddie Joyner for producing this podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts for the views room exchange and other reuters podcasts and check us out every day at breakingviews.com reuters.com and on
4: twitter at breaking Views.
1: bye